each one of us through our different experiences, our different cultural context can offer something unique to the body of Christ. And so I think that God made diversity as something that was good so the different kinds of people can manifest this, um, his glory in, in ways appropriate to that culture. So I think that God looks upon the diversity of the world and calls it good. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Esau McCauley is a Bible scholar and assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's a contributing writer at Christianity Today, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. His book, Writing While Black, won the 2021 Christianity Today Book Award for the category Beautiful Orthodoxy. His most recent book is a picture book called Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. Esau McCauley, I'm so glad uh, you agreed to be on the Habit Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So, uh, Josie Johnson's hair and the Holy Spirit. And this is a departure from the kind of writing you've been known for. What possessed you to do a picture book? Well, it's funny. You, you really don't know what you can do until you do it. And so people say that everything that I do is a departure for something else. So my first book was a technical monograph that was just for New Testament studies. Um, Reading While Black was at the intersection of the church and the academy. Yeah. The New York Times pieces are for a mass audience. And so I don't know if I have a particular genre that I can claim as my own. Uh-huh. I think I, I think I like the process of writing and doing different kinds of things excites me. So that's it. And, and so in general, I don't know if I have if I settled on a genre yet. It depends yeah. on where, when and where you met me. But I would also say that um, they approached me about doing Josie Johnson, I think around it's kind of hard to get my head around it, but I think it was around January of last year uh-huh. and it was at the height of the pandemic. And um, I think we even in pre pre vaccine time. And I wanted, I wanted, I didn't feel like writing anything very technical. Uh-huh. And I wanted something that had, you know, it was such a dark time. It was like the winter yeah. and I wanted to write something that was hopeful. And so this gave me a chance to do something hopeful. And so in a varsity reached out to me, um, and asked me, did I have any ideas for a children's book? And the story for Josie just kind of came pretty quickly. Uh-huh. Um, at the end of this picture book, you uh, include a note to grownups. And, and you said, sometimes children do not know how to speak about differences without making value judgments. For children, this is different can mean this is strange. So it's important to affirm and celebrate our unique physical traits and personality traits as part of God's creative and intentionally diverse design. And of course, for a whole lot of adults, not just children, but adults, this is different. Means yeah. This is strange. So I, yeah. I just want to talk about that and, and, um, yeah. and hear about you know, the, the, the ways that stories can make difference, uh, can lead us to take joy in difference, let's say, rather yeah, than be I, suspicious. Yeah. The first thing is I notice this in my own kids. They kind of, they just kind of go, well, what is this? This isn't what I'm used to. This is bad. It's true with food, you know, like I don't want to try this, you know? And so children don't have a lot of nuanced thinking. And so you have to kind of instruct them on part of what you're doing as a parent is I don't think that you can form personalities. I think kids are kind of made the way that God made them and they're kind of glorious in their diversity. What you can, what you can do, I think, is inculcate values through which that personality can then manifest itself. Hmm. And so, what I wanted to, and I think that's what stories do. I think the best stories 
kind of shape our imagination and influence how we how we see the world. And this is not Anna Karenina or like these kind of great works of fiction. This isn't, you know, crime and punishment. But really good fiction like changes you in the process that expands you or challenges you. Even if you reaffirm what you believe beforehand, you do it in a more nuanced way. And so with kids and they're still developing imagination, I wanted to 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 embed as a deep value within them this idea that God made us differently. Mm-hmm. And the guy made us differently as a manifestation of his, his creativity, not so that we can rank one another um, based upon things that God himself does not use as a basis for rank. Yeah, it's great. I, I love the, the question you include, a couple of questions you include for parents or adults to ask children when they read this book. And one, I think, was what what differences do you notice in your classmates, your neighbors and your friends? And then I love the second question, which is what do you think God thinks about those differences? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, think, how do you answer that question? What does God think about these differences? Well, there is, there is, um, I actually, I, I put that question on the lips of, um, I think it was on the lips of the father in the book. Uh-huh. So, and I asked them, you know, when God made the um, fish of the sea, did he make one kind of fish or thousands? And in the book, Josie goes thousands. And when God made, you know, all of the colors, did he make everything blue? Or did he make multiple colors, multiple colors? And I said, well, okay, you can kind of see then that God himself is creative, is creative and that each person is kind of one of God, God's unique works of art. And so what I, what I think that God, I think that God, so crafted the universe or or the creation that we need one another mm-hmm. and that each one of us through our different experiences our different cultural context can offer something unique to the body of christ and so i think that god made diversity as something that was good so the different kinds of people can manifest this um, his glory in, in ways appropriate to that culture so i think that god looks upon the diversity of the world and calls it good I think that God looks upon the ways in which we we rank each other and he calls that sin. Yeah. That's good. I love the way you tie the idea of creation and creativity yeah. to the question of diversity and the, and the value of that. Yeah, so the, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Right. Yeah. And so the, the point I think from that Psalm is, Creation itself reveals something about God's character. The book of Romans uh, says there's certain things about God that can be known from creation. We need special revelation to teach us the fullness of who God is in Jesus. But you do learn something about um, God's power and God's creativity by creation itself. Like there are certain things in creation that are simply beautiful. They don't have no, they they do not have a particular utilitarian purpose. That their beauty is their purpose. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so sometimes I, I think about that as it relates to the diversity of cultures, that um, the, 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 the different things, the different cultures that bring to the church are gifts. And of course, every culture um, has ways in which it needs to be refined and according with the, with God's purposes. Like I said, no, no culture encounters God and is left unchanged by that encounter in the same way that no person encounters God without being changed by it. But it doesn't make us less of who we are. It makes us fully who we are. So I think that what I want kids and parents to see is God 
God made us different on purpose. And that that difference in that union across difference is is a manifestation of his glory. You a minute ago, you said it makes us not less than who we are, but more than who we are. What was the antecedent for that pronoun? It. Do you remember um, the encounter with God? The encounter with God makes the us not fully ourselves. God. Yeah. So, like, I am a better person. I am the. You know, this this is um, this is Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Yeah. And it's not that we don't do. It's not that we do nothing good at all before we encounter God. But the full purpose which God intended to us is hindered and limited in a thousand ways by human selfishness and sin. And so when we encounter the living God and we're transformed, then we might actually run down the path that God has created to us unhindered. That's why the Bible talks about setting aside all of the, the you know, the sin that so easily entangles us. If we pursue um, God's purposes in our lives fully. And so my encounter with God didn't make me less of Esau Macaulay. It made me the Esau Macaulay that God had always intended me to be. So when I think about like elements of African-American culture or any culture, um, when that culture encounters God, then it doesn't obliterate culture. Right. It doesn't say that, you know, the, the, the music and the food and the, and the ways of speech are, are, are kind of pushed to the side. No, those becomes the means by which we glorify God as our culture um, articulates those things. And so the encounter with God then doesn't destroy culture. It redeems culture. Culture can then run down the path that God has created for it through its artists and through its musicians and through its, um, its, its other expressions. And so that's what I mean when I talk about God's creativity is that in every language in the world, every people in the world, there's the possibility that that particular culture can offer its distinctive worship to God, but that it somehow in God's own providence joins with the other cultures to kind of sing the same song about God through different cultures. Yeah, every every tribe and tongue and nation and it's like it's in the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. In, at the beginning of the first chapter or two of um, Reading While Black, you talk about the ways you were shaped as a person and as a thinker and as a as a, a person who does creative work by um, both, you know, your mother's gospel music and then hip hop yeah. and 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 all the the other you know soul music and all these, these kinds yeah. of things, um, which seems to me relevant to what to what you're talking about here about. You know, yeah. you, you said as, as cultures um, encounter. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that a lot of times when people think about storied worlds, so when pastors um, stand up in front of pulpits and they deliver sermons, they will talk about a television show or a movie or some line from a song, and they're not always Christians. They're just like cultural artifacts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that often happens is it's those cultural artifacts when I was going through seminary and other places were all from white majority culture and not yeah. from black culture. In other words, black cultural artifacts. And, 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 and this is the interesting thing about this. I want, I want to make sure I'm really clear about this. Sometimes they, they pass to present an idea from a movie, from, from the culture, from music, and then challenge it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he or she would affirm it. But in other words, for that pastor, 
that culture was a place of dialogue. Mm, yeah. And one of the things that is implicitly communicated is that if only one culture becomes the dialogue partner, it's making the statement that these are the only people who I need to interact with theologically and culturally. And so in Reading My Black, the reason I use African-American cultural artifacts in its music and in its art and in its poetry is to make the claim that the particular questions posed by black, black cultural artifacts deserve an answer and they deserve theological reflection. And so even when I'm affirming or pushing back or dialoguing, I'm making an implicit claim about um, the value of the questions that being black in America raises for people. And the, re the reason this relates to Josie Johnson is that, sure, in a general sense, everybody struggles with insecurity. Mm -hmm. And everybody, little girls and little boys, wonder about, you know, the way they look and how they fit in with their friends. And that's kind of like, that's just common to the human experience, I would say. But it is also the case that for African-American girls in particular, there's a particular set of pressures. You know, if you think about a young white girl, probably 80 to 90 percent of all of the television shows she she watches, the girls look like her. And so, like, I'm not saying there's little diversity, but it's always diversity. The normative culture is the normative culture. So she grows up seeing little girls who look like her and she thinks that she's normal. Well, how does it form the imagination of a black girl? Because they don't make all of the television shows, even if you're intentional as a black parent. There's only so many television shows. So yeah. my daughter sees all of the young girls who, who are kind of finding themselves and affirming their identity and doing all of these things. They're all young white girls. They may be blonde or redheaded, but they're still all the same. And so the, how does that inform her imagination? And what kind of stories does she need to hear about her particularity that's going to encourage her to understand that what, how God made me is important. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is I talked to my five-year-old daughter about this. And I said to her, you know, and I use Josie Johnson as a conversation piece. Do you notice that you're the only girl and one of the few girls in your school who have hair like you? She's like, yeah, I do. Like, I'm the only one with curly hair. Mm. I said, do you ever feel different? She's like, yeah, I do. Um, but and, and so she she's loved this book. I'm, I'm, they, they can't see it. I'm holding it. She loves this book. And I don't care if people buy it. And I'm just telling you like how she experienced it. Um, in the book, there's four fictional characters. Um, each one of them roughly corresponds to the four kids in our family. Okay. And she opens it up and she finds the page where she goes, that's me. <laughs> and then she, she went and we have a little photocopier at our house and she photocopied a copy, a photocopied a, um, a page of it and she starts coloring it. She slept with the book. She <laughs> took the book to school and had her classmates had the, the, you know, it's kindergarten. She took the book to school and had her teacher read it because seeing herself represented meant a lot to her. Hmm. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this encourages um, other kids but I really wrote the book to do that. I know this is crazy selfish to write a whole book so that your kids, <laughs> but unless I would say, unless it was in this form, my daughter wouldn't listen to me. But now it's like, I've read it two or three times, you know, it's just like Josie Johnson's like becoming our, our normal bedtime routine. And so I really do feel like um, the particularity of the questions that African-Americans are facing, especially young black girls is worthy of my time and attention. 
And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I told the stories that I did in reading my black. Mm, yeah, I know. I, I, I thought a lot about reading while black while I was reading Josie Johnson, you know? And, okay. Uh, <laughs> Can you it, tell us the same author? <laughs> I, I could tell us an author with some, with uh, some overlapping interests. Yeah, may, may, maybe this was uh, this was settled all of the authorship issues in the New Testament. Like, there's no way the person who wrote Josie Johnson could have written "Reading While Black" and then written <laughs> the New York Times op-ed. So it's kind of funny to like you know to cross those genres and try to adjust your voice. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think one of the one of my favorite moments in "Reading While Black" that seems really relevant to Josie Johnson was was when you talk about. Um, well, I mean, you, you you devote at least a chapter or two to this idea that um, not only has the church been ethnically diverse from day one, but even Israel was ethnically diverse, which I yeah. found fascinating and something I'd never paid any attention to, uh, I'm sorry to say. And um, and I love the way I, 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 in my notes here, I, I printed out a couple of sentences you said it's not a matter for for black christians it's not a matter of finding our place in somebody else's story the bible is first and foremost a story of god's desire to create a people and we are encompassed in that desire and that idea that 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 the the idea that you know black theology is not we're trying to find a place in this white white religion is I mean that that should be self-evident, but yeah, I think it is. I think that um, the reason the reason that African American Christians in some I can't speak for all I would say the reason that some of the people who I who I had in mind when I wrote the book feel that way is because the way in which the story of Christianity has been told has excluded African Americans um, functionally from doing from being central important characters in God's story. And the interesting thing about, especially, I tell the story in Read Around Black of Ephraim and Manasseh. Mm-hmm. But you can also do it with, um, for example, Ruth, you know, the Moabite who comes into um, David's grand, what, grandparent, grandmother, great-grandmother, whatever that works. Um, no, David, Obed, and David, great-great-grandmother. So you, you could just, anyways, you could say that the Bible is explicit in a variety of places to articulate the gathering of the nations into the tribe of Abraham. And it's not a sub theme. It's not like, a, it's not like there's this other main part of the story that I want to tell. Um, and I'm just going to include here and there a nod to diversity. One of the strange things about what happened with Christianity in, in America and other places is that this is the point of the story. And it's just like right on the Bible. So for Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, right? So like many different ethnic groups are all going to be a part of your family. That's the reason, that's the, that's his name, you know? And so in, in case you didn't get the point, I'm going to include Ephraim and Manasseh who are half um, Egyptian and half Jewish brought into um, the 12 tribes. In case you didn't get the point, I'm going to highlight that David's ancestors were not just Israelites. They come from the Moabite, the um, uh, Moabite um, community and they come in and, you know, she's adopted. She, she, she marries Boaz and that's where David's line comes from. And so it's like, almost like God put it there plainly to say that the gospel is for everybody. 
You know, when we when we talk about um, one of the things I say to my students here at Wheaton is that when we talk about the Great Commission, go forth into all of the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We tend to pick up the story like with us and then go from there. In other words, we hear that command, especially in the West, as a command from Europe to go or America to parts of Africa or whatever. But I, I, I like to, and that's fine. Like you can still continue to do mission work. I'm not saying don't do mission work. But what I'm saying is the existence of the church in Europe is a manifestation of the gospels going to the nations. Yeah, and, and and so like yeah, the gospel yeah. comes from the Middle East and goes to Europe. The gospel comes from northern parts of Africa and it goes to other parts. In other words, it's not that white Christianity, white Christians in America, have Christianity that it was theirs and they're giving it to the nations. They are the nations to whom the gospel came. Yeah, because the gospel was firstly and first and foremost the twelve disciples and you know the you know the people who were gathered at Pentecost were all Jews. Mm-hmm. So the entirety of Gentiles are man. Every Gentile Christian that exists in the world is a manifestation of the obedience of the Jewish core of Christianity, obeying the divine command to spread the gospel to the nations. And so it's really hard to see. Um, it, it's hard to open the Bible in the gospels. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to in the gospels. You see like this, this image of Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out to all the world to evangelize um, different ethnic groups. You have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles in his letters. You have the book of Acts that describes the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the end to the earth. You have the book of Revelation at the end. It has as its climactic vision, the gathering of every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship Jesus. So if you go all the way back from the story of Abraham, in which God has promised to make him into the father of many nations, concluding with the gathering of the nations around the throne of God and the new creation, you get this idea that a consistent theme in the Bible is God's desire to gather different types of people. And we somehow lost the centrality of that vision mm-hmm. as a motivating um, aspect of what it means for us to kind of follow God faithfully. Because we're not kind of consider diversity an optional extra if you can get it, but if, if it doesn't, as long as you get everything else right, that's okay. And I feel like the um, ethnic the union across ethnic difference under the lordship of Jesus seems to be a central teaching of the New Testament. Okay. I, I, <laughs> we agree. I believe you. Yes. Um, this is okay. So this is a podcast about writing and about, you know, about writing storytelling, this sort of thing. Um, talk to me about how writers, storytellers. Yeah. Um, carry forward that, that mission that you just described. Uh, can can think, participate think, in that expansion of of I say expansion. I, that sounds now I'm I'm using the language of of uh, the the backwards use of the um, of the uh, Great Commission. I, I really what I mean is the the gathering together of of all the people. On the, I would say like really I think the imagination is very very important. I'm thinking about fiction in particular because Josie Johnson is a fiction book. I think that imagination, the ways in which we think about the world that we experience, uh, 
One of the things that makes humans unique is that we can reflect upon the human. We, we think about what we're doing when we're doing it. I'm assuming the lion just wants, you know, something to eat. So he goes and eats it. He doesn't think, you know, this is, <laughs> it's a beautiful sunset. And look at this wonderful pond that this, you yeah. know, this deer is gazing upon. Let yeah. me go and consume it. You know, <laughs> and then yeah, he, he can't it. think of, a, of an antelope as beautiful. He can't think of it as delicious. You know, he doesn't reflect upon the, you know, the beauty of the antelope's form as he's consuming it, you know, yeah. by the pond on a Tuesday afternoon. But a human, a human being can think about the world that they inhabit. And one of the one of the things that shapes the world that we that we inhabit is through story. One of the things, let me give you a, a, a concrete example. You think about the Torah, the Old Testament. I mean, not the Torah, the first five books of the of the Torah of the Bible, and it's called the Torah. And we think Torah is translated as law, and it it is it's law, but it, the other word is instruction. Like that, the first five books of the Bible can be seen as an instruction. When people say, "What does it mean to follow the law?" Well, they tend to think of the 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 legal aspects of the Torah. In other words, parts of Deuteronomy and parts of Exodus, where they're given the rules. Mm-hmm. But it's also instructive that a significant portion of the Torah itself is a narrative, mm-hmm. right? And that the narrative itself is a part of law. In other words, yeah. you're instructed through narrative. The other thing that you also find within the Torah itself is music. Abraham's, I mean, Moses' song and um, Miriam's song. So within the instruction in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, is music. So here's another interesting thing then. So how are we, how did God form a people? So God had a people of Israel. He wanted to shape them into a certain kind of people. Well, what did he do? He gave them laws, certain rules you need to follow. That's fine. But he also told them stories. He instructed them. He also gave them music and he also gave them liturgy and ritual. And so when you talk about what does the artist do as relates to um, spreading this, this, this understanding of God, well, part of what storytelling does is it forms the imagination. And so you don't have to make everything a parable where it's just like, here's a direct gospel application. Mm-hmm. But you can say, what kind of artistic forms can I use to shape people to think about the world in a way that I think may ultimately be um, conducive to God's purposes? Um, And even if the story itself does the opposite, Mm. in other words, the story could explore the implications of what happens when you pursue a life apart from God. Because one of the interesting things about biblical stories is, it, and, and I think that the I think that these stories are historical, so I'm not talking about you know history versus fiction, but in the historical narratives, yeah. it is interesting that people learn as often by what they shouldn't do as by what they should do. You know, mm-hmm. you learn about David oftentimes by seeing what David does and kind of go, oh, don't do that. Yeah. So in other words, good art doesn't have to be didactic. It doesn't actually have to conclude with a moral point, like exercise through one of the characters, for example. It could be the exploration of what happens when someone doesn't do those things. And so you begin to see over and over again in the Bible where sin has cascading consequences. Yeah. And you learn through, you know, the story of Solomon mm-hmm. and Solomon's um, indulgence in multiple wives that ultimately led, led his heart from God. And it kind of has these these cascading implications. And so good art has a moral universe that informs how 
informs the content of the writing, even if the writing itself doesn't like didactically teach you the moral lesson. It just forces you to think. And so I think that a good artist can force us to think about the world in which we live and consider how the decisions that we make um, impact our, our, our own spiritual and emotional well-being as well as that of others. Yeah. You know, another thing that, that I think is, I see as a theme in your in your work, both in your your uh, pieces in the New York Times, in in Reading While Black, it's always good. When people tell me my themes. I don't know what I'm doing, so it's good for someone. Okay, good. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell, tell you now. Now you'll know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the idea that there are stories. Stories can create realities, including false realities. Yeah, and then it, it seems to me. Your your project, that's a okay way to put it, is a reminder of these larger realities that we didn't create. Yeah. You know, and so um the the in reading while black, you're saying, hey, here's a truer story than the story that has been limiting the way we think about the the gospel the way we think about what church is the way we think about you know the kingdom of god we've been it's not that you're erecting a a new story to counter this other story it's no he, here's the real here's here's a true story here's here's a, a truer better story i mean i think about the, the the first time i was i encountered your writing was that piece you wrote uh, about Ahmad Arbery in uh, in the New York yeah. um, and there was a there's a moment in there I, I, I didn't I haven't don't have it written out I just, I just so forgive me if I get this wrong but but you say in, in, in essence um, we don't I don't have to wait for America to value black lives America doesn't have the um, the authority, the confidence to make confidence. that make that valuation, to make the, yeah, to make that valuation. Yeah. Black lives are just valuable, and yeah. and if uh, if we fail to acknowledge that as a nation, then then we're in trouble. Yeah, because that's a reality, and eventually reality swamps our our little realities that we make for ourselves. Yeah, I would say. Um... I think that one of the things that, so Bible story. Okay. Forgive me. Um, I was just talking, I was teaching about John, so maybe that's why it's on my, it's in my mind. There's this question in the, in the trial, the, the trial as recounted in John's gospel, where um, Pilate, you know, Jesus comes and says, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate poses this question, what is truth? And this is kind of a famous question and they kind of like, people have kind of done a million things with it. But one of the things that I've taken from that story, and I hope that I'm reading it well, is that Pilate could be asking the question, what difference does truth make when I have all of the power? Hmm. In other words, you could be hurt particularly right, but I got a whole army and I got a cross down the road. So truth, truth doesn't matter. What matters is what I say about who you are. Uh-huh. And that to me sets up this, this conflict can truth and power be separated? Huh. Does the person with the biggest army always determine what the truth is? And the crucifixion of Jesus 
is an assertion about the nature of truth. He's guilty because I say he's guilty and I have the power. But the resurrection, if it is true, suggests that truth and power can be separated. In other words, the, the decision that the state makes about Jesus was voided by an act of God who raised him from the dead. And if that resurrection is true, then that fact about reality is kind of etched into the universe, etched into creation itself. In other words, truth exists apart from the imposition of that truth upon the powerful, by the powerful. So that means me, I don't got to have all of the power mm. to say that my black life is valuable. It is true because God says it's true. And so I can say in general, humanity and or in particular America doesn't have the confidence to weigh in on the value of my life. It can affirm that reality or it can deny that reality, but all it takes is for a Christian um, to, to encounter the living God and to see what he says about persons in his word and down through church history and say, I don't care about the story that you've been telling. There's not just an alternative story in the sense that these are two stories battling for power. There's a false story and a true story. And the true story is the story in which God gathers all the nations under the lordship of his son for his glory. All right. Um, Hallelujah. (laughs) That that story. All right. There's there's another uh, theme. Since I'm identifying all your themes, uh, another one I want to hear you talk about a little bit. And and I did... uh, print out this uh, this little passage. This is also from that same uh, Ahmaud Arbery piece from the New York Times. Um, you said, alongside the litany of suffering that marks the Black experience, there is a chant that grows in power in times of crisis. It is in the spirituals and the blues, in hip-hop, soul, and gospel music. It is in Black poetry, fiction, and film. This is a chorus of defiant joy, a refusal to let fear stifle hope. Um, oh, that's a pretty good line. Did I say that? Yeah, you did. You, yeah. Wow. And and when I read that, I thought I'm going to find what else this guy's written. And, can, it's fun. It's so funny when you just reading this stuff and you go, "Oh, that was pretty good." Who said that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, talk to me about. I mean, what what does what does joy have to do? And, and we can talk about hope too. What does that have to do with with your with your work as a writer? Um. I feel like the only kind of joy that you can have that is real is the joy that comes on the other side of telling the truth. Hmm. In other words, you can't have a joy that doesn't see the world for what it is. Um, that's a false joy. that's threatened always at every moment to be pierced by reality. And I think that one of the things that I do here as a professor at Wheaton is you see students who come out and they know some in high school or and some people have been through things, but it's sometimes you get older, you really begin to see the world for what it is. And it's different than the world that you imagine under the safety of your parents' protection, if you were blessed to have that. Um, but the joy that you, you know, there, there's this, this line in, um, in what John's, in this world, you would have many, many trials would so be of good comfort because I've, I've overcome the world. And so the joy that I have is is a result of my confidence in God's victory. Mm. And that confidence, I, it is intellectually always true, but it's not emotionally always true. And in that particular piece, I've talked about how in time, the point that I was trying to get at is that in times of great trial, uh, especially in African-American culture, 
there is a sense in which some of our greatest art has been produced. And that we have um, found ways to make room for joy in a world that seems determined to um, to 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 ext- extinguish it. And that is the testimony. It's in the spirituals and the blues. It's in music and art. And so that's what I was trying to get at, this idea that joy is a rebellious act in a world that wants to keep you from being happy. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, joy is a rebellious act. I love it. Um, all right. On uh, on Twitter, you recently shared a clip from Chance the Rapper. Yeah. Uh, child of God. And then you tweeted, just do your thing, child of God. <laughs> it's my whole energy for the rest of 2002. Yeah. I'm gonna. I might have to borrow that. What do you suppose that's gonna look like? Uh, this this idea of uh, doing your thing, child of God. How, how's that energy gonna express itself? So I think that um, I can't psychoanalyze um, Chance and what he was doing, but I felt like that song that he released was him articulating to the world that what he was gonna do was create the art that God had given him to do, mm-hmm. and that sometimes he said this world can make you doubt you. Um, your first mind. In other words, yeah. the world that you experience it can make you doubt um, your ability to do things. And what you really, um, what you, the song is um, called Child of God, but the, the refrain over it, just do your thing. And when I saw that, it made me feel like that's kind of how I feel as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these people um, are always telling me what I can and can't do. Um, and I'm just going to do my thing. And the other thing that, that you see is the, the more you do this, the more art that you put out into the world, the more people are critical of it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and not everybody's going to root for you. Yeah. As, a, as a matter of fact, some people are going to root for you to fail for a variety of reasons. And that, that negativity can become paralyzing. And you, at a certain point, you're either broken by that pressure Mm-hmm. Well, you say, you know what? I'm just going to do my thing. <laughs> and so um, you just have to let, you got to produce the art that God has given you to produce. And if people are going to be in their feelings about it, let them be in their feelings. And that's not arrogance. It's about, sure. you can't discern your call by the consensus of your critics. You have to discern your call by listening to the spirit of God in conversation with the people who actually love you. Yeah. And that's how I think you do your thing. I love that insight where you say in, in consultation with the people who love you. That is so important. Yeah. Uh, all right. I always end with this question. Who are the writers who make you want to write? I mean, I'm, I'm often inspired by musicians. So uh-huh. <laughs> as you can hear, as you can see in my, in my, um, in reading my black and even yeah. actually in Josie Johnson, there's music in Josie Johnson Brandon Craig Franklin. Uh-huh. So I think that music always inspires me um, and like good, good, good lyrical dexterity in hip hop is always mm. good. So I would say, and I've just found myself in this season and I don't have a particular person in mind reading fiction uh, to inspire me to be creative. Mm-hmm. I've also made this um, a season where I'm just trying to read because it's a gap. It's been a gap in my own development just because both my own shortcomings and the shortcomings of the education that I experienced are reading more African-American women, both in fiction and in theology and in biblical studies. Do you have a, just a few 
uh, names you can throw out there? Um, I just finished reading. I'm reading a book in front of me now called Sisters in the Wilderness by um, Dolores S. Williams. I, I finished before that a book by Katie Cannon. Um, those are two um, womanist scholars. I um, am working um, slowly through Jackie Hill Perry's book. Um, oh, man, I could say Lisa Bowens, G. Smith. Um, so I'm, this is biblical studies. You're going to be, you know, if you want to talk about African-American women in fiction, Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Are Watching God, um, Maya Angelou. Um, I'm, it's not, it's, it's somebody else who's at the tip of my tongue, but it's not Maya. Um, but it's someone else who's just floating. It's the end. It's the it's the it's it's afternoon on a Wednesday. So my brain I know I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. As relates to fiction, and I'm in my biblical studies office, so I can't turn around. Yeah, and, and look at it. So those are just some of the ones that that I'm working on through now. Yeah. Well, Lisa Macaulay, I am uh, really happy that you're doing your thing. So keep doing your thing, <laughs> child of God. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.